this was an early one that we had to figure out how to deal with, but it turns out that cornfields, the elevation of cornfields changes pretty significantly during the course of growing and harvest season, right? And so you you get this um, situation where the algorithms are, are trying to model a three meter change in elevation over time and it is plus three meters over kind of a steady increase and then a very fast um, or a step function minus three meters. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Isaac and Isaac is the vice president of Vricon. So the reason I invited Isaac on the show today is because Vricon is building the highest resolution, most accurate 3D surface model of Earth. And they're using satellite data to do this. So this in itself is nothing new, but Vricon's approach is really interesting. And Isaac's going to walk us through it step by step, how they do it today and what this might look like in the future. And just before we dive into the interview today, I want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, Hive Mapper. That's Hive as in Beehive Mapper. And this is the platform that lets you upload video footage from a variety of different platforms. This could even come from your cell phone. So you can upload it to their platform and have it automatically converted into 3D geospatial layers. No need to georeference the imagery, no need to have any location meta tags in there. Just take it from your phone if you want, upload it to the cloud, and it's done for you. I think it's fascinating and it's well worth checking out if you're interested. Okay, let's get into the interview. Hi, Isaac. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. And I, I realize your schedule has been pretty busy lately because you've just had your second child. So I <laughs> appreciate that you, that you took the time to, to do this interview, interview with me. So you come from a company, or I should say you are the vice president of a company called Vercon. Uh, and on the website, I see a couple of words which are, which are very, very eye-catching, and they are the globe in 3D and beyond Google Earth. So already I'm thinking that, that you and your company have something to do with building 3D models of the Earth. But before we dive into that, can you perhaps give us a bit of background about yourself and how you got into the, into the geospatial world? Uh, certainly. And uh, first, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, I always enjoy getting a chance to talk about this. Um, so my background is a little bit um, strange, and I've taken a path that I, I don't think many of my peers have. Um, I actually started my career as a mechanical engineer building race cars, um, and it was only out of um, pure happenstance that I responded to a Craigslist ad one summer while I was in grad school looking for an intern who uh, thought that Google Earth was the cool, coolest thing since sliced bread, who knew how to build supercomputers and um, was a photography nerd, of which I was only moderately a photography nerd. I had never really played around with Google Earth at the time, but I had been playing around with supercomputers since I was 15. So. It just so happened responding to that Craigslist ad um, got me a job at one of the only startup companies in Portland, Oregon that was doing ISR related work for the de uh, Department of Defense. So I promptly went from being a grad student in upstate New York to deploying to Afghanistan in support of an airborne ISR program uh, right in the middle of um, the surge as it was happening 
back in 2010 and um, promptly got hooked on the geospatial mission and on the, the kind of broader national security and defense mission as a whole. So firstly, I want to say congratulations on having by far the most interesting story of all the people that I've interviewed on the podcast so far. I mean, going from being a mechanical engineer to working in geospatial and especially on the path that you took, I mean, there's very few people that that have a story like that. Okay, so we understand a little bit about your background now. What is it that you do? That's a great question. So I I get asked that question on a daily basis, and I affectionately describe myself as being the vice president of stuff um, because I play kind of an interesting in-between role uh, where I spend the majority of my time bridging the gap between the end users and uh, our ultimate customers along with the the kind of procurers navigating the bureaucracy of a lot of the large government and commercial organizations that we do from a business standpoint but then also managing the direct interaction and shaping of our uh, product development path and our strategy. Okay, so perhaps we've we've dived in a little deep here at the start. Perhaps you could tell us about the problems that Vercon is solving. Sure, that's probably a good place to start. So the one sentence description of what we're trying to do here at Vercon is um, ultimately we're trying to build the highest resolution, most accurate 3D map of the face of the planet and then enable new uses for 3D geospatial content across a broad set of different industry verticals. Okay, so so if we, we take the first bit of that sentence, we're trying to build the most accurate 3D model of the planet in the world. Okay, um, how are you doing that? What, what data are you using? Where is it coming from? What's the process look like? Sure. So we're a little bit of an interesting company to begin with. Uh, we are only four and a half years old at this point in time, but we are the product of a joint venture between two very large companies. So you can think of the two of them as investors in us. Um, the first one is a company called Saab. Uh, many of you are familiar with their cars, but in fact, they are a, a relatively large industrial organization from Sweden that does everything from um, building fighter jets and um, shoulder-fired rockets for the United States military to uh, building submarines and pretty much everything in between. Um, So they're one of our investors. And then on the other side, um, our other investor was the company formerly known as Digital Globe. Now uh, they fall under the larger organization, Maxar. But they are the, the world's leading commercial high-resolution satellite imagery company in the world. So when those two companies came together, um, they each invested in us. On the one hand, Saab invested a a technology stack out of their portfolio and some intellectual property focused on very large-scale automated image processing, and particularly uh, multi-view 3D reconstruction. On the other hand, we had Digital Globe at the time that invested all of their commercial satellite imagery. So essentially we have um, a library card that gives us access to their entire commercial imagery archive, past, present, and future. Today that archive 
sits at right around 100 petabytes and growing very quickly worth of um, the most accurate, highest resolution commercial satellite imagery that's available. So with those two building blocks, when Fracon was formed in 2015, the number one kind of laser focus goal for the company was to be able to bring together those two investments and establish a commercial production capability here in the Northern Virginia area where we could um, scale out those image processing algorithms that we got from Saab and um, build up the workflow and the infrastructure to allow us to take pretty much all of that imagery from Digital Globe and ultimately as much imagery as we can get from anyone else in the entire world um, and push it all through a giant supercomputer automatically process it, correlate every single image against every other overlapping image, and then use that information in order to reconstruct the um, kind of photo photorealistic 3D uh, world. Okay, so when we're reconstructing the world in this way, I'm assuming that we're not just making a, a ball floating in space that is made up of overlapping images. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, so I'll try to stay reasonably high level from a technical description. So if I fall too far down, please pull me back. But um, the concept of stereo photogrammetry has been has been a core part of, of geospatial science for 70, 80 years now. The basic concept is that you can use image processing techniques to derive depth from two overlapping images that were collected from different perspectives in the same way that our eyes do, right? So your eyes are sensing the same scene, but from slightly different perspectives. And you can measure the your brain um, many times per second every day is measuring the slight variations in the location of each feature in the scene based on those two different perspectives. And from that variation, then your brain can measure the depth of the scene. So stereophotogrammetry is, is basically that same concept just applied to images collected by sensors. And that was kind of the state of the art, like I said, through the latter half of the 20th century. We have a lot of the, the kind of elevation models or the large geospatial data sets that describe the terrain of the world have been derived from stereophotographic methods one way or another. And it was really, that, that was kind of the state of the art for a long time. And then ultimately as computer vision algorithms and modern computational capability really started to take hold over the last 20 or 30 years, you saw the academic community transitioned from that concept of stereophotogrammetry to what was then called multi-view stereophotogrammetry. So the biggest difference there is that Traditional stereo, you think of having two images, just like your eyes, right? Um, and those two images are expected to be collected from a very structured geometry, so you know exactly what the angles are between them. The idea with multi-view was to, to re remove some of that kind of sensitivity or dependency on collection. And rather than just thinking about having two images, now I just say, give me a big pile of overlapping imagery that may have been collected from a myriad of different perspectives, 
um, maybe over some period of time, maybe from a bunch of different sensors. And I will use computer vision algorithms to take each image and every other image that it overlaps with, and I'll very accurately correlate them together so that I can then um, essentially backwards calculate where the original sensors were in space and calculate those measurements to, um, to understand the depth or the three-dimensional component in every scene. And then you get to, to add in this kind of statistical computational statistic component where you can do large scale bundle adjustments and statistical correlations through the entire stack of stereo pairs that you're generating over any given point on the earth. And it allows you to, to create a very, very accurate end result. And what is the, the, the end result of all this? Sure. So the, the kind of rawest product that we at Rycon produce is what's called a fully textured 3D surface model. Um, so what that means is that it's, um, in our case, and we're, we're a little bit unique, um, there are not that many groups that are, are out there in the, the community who have taken the approach that we have. But our, our very first product is what's called a textured mesh. So you can kind of think of it as the kind of the type of data that you would see in a video game like Call of Duty or something like that. You have these maps that are made up of a bunch of uh, triangles with textures mapped to them that represent a uh, kind of continuous surface in the scene. So for us, the, the most or the first thing that comes out of our automated production process is this very dense textured mesh that represents the reflective surface of the earth in a continuous way. So that the when I say reflective surface, I mean we're working from from EO collection or for the most part from a satellite standpoint. So so we can only model from a mathematical standpoint what the satellites can actually see at any given point in time. So we end up with this um, this 3D model of the exterior of everything that you can see from space. Okay, so so you said that you make a couple of products, and, and this was the first one that sort of comes out of the system. So uh, I'm assuming even with this first product here, you'll run into a few difficulties around cloud cover, for example. There are a lot of complexities in any form of image processing, right? And anybody in the field that you talk to will will uh, will give you an it depends answer at some point in time, or many of them. So one of the really unique things for us is that we are trying to, to tackle this image processing problem at a global level. And so if you go, if you go out into the commercial marketplace today, you'll, you'll find um, a reasonable, reasonably competitive landscape for kind of desktop uh, multi-view stereo uh, reconstruction software packages. There are, there are many of them. The academic community published some, some open source libraries a number of years ago that, that have kind of spurred an interesting um, market. But most of those companies are focused on small scale kind of drone collected or airborne collected data sets where you can choose how you do your collection so that you don't have to deal with things like atmospheric effects or clouds or um, the temporal changes that you get from bigger data sets. So we're, we're really kind of unique in the marketplace in that we actually have access to 
this massive amount of satellite imagery, which has forced us, it's both given us the opportunity and also forced us to develop our algorithms and our workflows to be able to address some of these really kind of complex challenges that come down to the fact that uh, environmental effects are hard, clouds are hard, and the earth is a really complex place. So clouds, it turns out, are not not the hardest problem that we typically face. Um, we, we have implemented kind of a pre-processing step in our overall workflow where we, we can go through and pretty accurately mask out all of the actual cloud pixels using an automated algorithm. The place where it gets a little bit more challenging with clouds is actually the shadows that come from clouds. Because when you start wanting to be able to use the um, pixels from these images to actually texture this 3D model, so to, to add the, the image information to it, and you're doing these really complex composites of a number of different images, trying to, to, to separate out the shadows um, or the areas that have been shadowed from areas that are, are not shadowed so you get a nice kind of clean color balance texture is a pretty hard problem. But when it comes to the, the 3D reconstruction side of things, the biggest problems that we see without a doubt are water. Most people who do work in the geospatial world who, who, or who have ever dealt with kind of geospatial data processing can will usually point to water as a really one of their biggest challenges. And that's just because it's really, really complex and it moves. So when, when we're talking about wanting to build a 3D model of an entire country where you have, say, a 10 meter tidal shift from one coast on the western side to the coast on the eastern side, plus you have river networks that change elevation by hundreds, if not thousands of meters across the entire terrain of the um, the country and trying to, to figure out how to automatically be able to model the all of that complexity um, into kind of a finished static product is is a perpetually challenging um, problem for us. And you touched on a little bit there as well, like you are doing this at a global scale. And of course, that this data or the, this um, the, these data sets, these data products that you are making, I am assuming they need to be maintained. They're not a static thing at all. So we don't just, uh, I'm assuming you don't just create one model and say, that's it, we're done. I'm assuming this process needs to be repeated on perhaps a, a daily, weekly or, or monthly cycle. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, um, probably the the, second most common question that I get from customers and users comes down to, okay, well, what's the update schedule? What's the update rate? And this is, this is one of those really kind of tough questions when you start to think about it. So, so we, our goal number one is to go out and build a foundational data set for the planet. And it's really, it has taken 10 years worth of collection for satellite for uh, digital globe to get an archive worth of imagery that has even enabled us to to push towards that vision and the reality is that we even though we have access to all their imagery and we 
have relationships with many of the other commercial satellite providers that are out there. We use their imagery as well. The reality is that we don't control collection. And when it comes to the question of how frequently are things updated, we are completely at the mercy of when new data becomes available, when we're talking about this kind of large commercial production scale. So, so we, we've taken a few different approaches to, the, to thinking about how updates occur. So on the one hand, you can say, well, most of the collection that occurs on a daily basis is driven by priorities set by the biggest customers of these commercial satellite companies, which means that most of the data being collected is to satisfy either national security or uh, national security concerns or um, problems dealing with kind of economically important questions, right? So they're taking pictures of areas where people are for the most part or areas where we're concerned from a national security standpoint, which actually satisfies a lot of um, a lot of the need when it comes to updates because it's not a question of updating the entire planet on a daily basis. Um, to maybe someday that will be something that we can talk about, but today that still counts as the uh, computationally expensive <laughs> to the point of uh, not really being tractable. But you can start thinking about trying to identify the places that are meaningful to update. And that's one of the biggest areas of focus for us um, in the near future and with a couple of our customers is looking at, can we be smart about how we identify areas in our model where meaningful change is occurring and then start coordinating tasking and updating, whether it be from satellites or whether it be from other sensors uh, that may be available. So airborne or drone collected sensors um, and really just have a, a mathematical fram framework that allows us to register any of that new content into this foundational model and fuse it all together. So, yeah, so, so I'm imagining change detection would be a big part of, of what you're doing in, in terms of figuring out what areas uh, need to be updated. So where has change happened? Um, how do you do that? I'm assuming you have some algorithm running against the backlog of these images or perhaps against the model and then comparing it to new images that are coming in when new data becomes available and say, well, is this a change? And then I guess figuring out whether it's a meaningful change, this must be difficult. <laughs> Uh, yes, many tens of billions of dollars have been spent on trying to tackle the change detection question over the years. And you hit the nail on the head. Identifying change is typically not the problem. Being able to filter out and identify meaningful change is the really hard problem. So we internally, um, in our own production process, we have we have some tools that enable us to get a better idea of where meaningful change might be happening than, than many other customers. And, and some of that comes down to this whole concept of how the, the metadata um, from these stereo correlations can be used. So if you think about it, we're taking all of these images and we're comparing them against the entire historical record. So all of the other images that are, are have ever been collected over a given location. And we're doing these very accurate at a pixel level comparisons of those images. And, and so from a metadata standpoint, you end up with some interesting um, information. 
And some of it comes comes in the form of things that we have to try to deal with during production or mitigate for from an initial production standpoint, but it can be quite instructive down um, from an analytics standpoint when you're trying to understand what the world is actually doing. So we, I typically try to describe um, kind of in a simplistic way the fact that, that we see two kinds of noise um, from an algorithmic standpoint in our production process on a frequent basis. So, so you have high frequency noise and low frequency noise. And these relate to how the world is changing across all of those images that we're looking at. So high frequency noise you can think of as things that move quickly in a scene um, with respect to the time scale of satellite collection. So things that move from day to day. So if you look at 3D models that we've built of Washington DC, for example, where I live, you can you can zoom down and you can see the 395 freeway and there will be no cars on our 3D model of the freeway. And the reason is because it's not because there were no cars on the freeway when the images were collected. It's because there were cars on the freeway every day in every image that was collected, but they were different cars in slightly different locations. So when you try to match a car or a pixel that represents part of a car from one image to all of those other images that we're comparing it against, there's essentially zero correlation. So the algorithm says, this is high frequency noise. This thing doesn't really belong. It's not part of the static scene. So I'm going to choose to remove it from the finished model. The other type of noise that we tend to see is, is more of a low frequency noise. And this you can think of as things that change slowly over time. And so these are these are the types of meaningful changes that that are probably more interesting for the most part in most use cases, um, at least when when it comes to geospatial mapping. So so these are things that can range all the way from say something as as simple as uh, agricultural fields. So this was an early one that we had to figure out how to deal with, but it turns out that cornfields the elevation of cornfields changes pretty significantly during the course of growing and harvest season, right? And so you you get this um, situation where the algorithms are are trying to model a three meter change in elevation over time, and it, it is plus three meters over kind of a steady increase, and then a very fast um, or a step function minus three meters. And so that that can create some kind of confusion from the algorithm standpoint. We've had to figure out ways to essentially identify that these are crop fields and and apply more of an optimized algorithm for that scenario. But you can also think about buildings being built, right? So if you have uh, if you're trying to build cities in China, this is a particularly uh, acute problem where you have new skyscrapers that are getting built over the course of six months. And so you may have satellite or we may have satellite images where in the first image that we're using, there's just a hole in the ground. And in the newest image that we're using in our model, there's an entirely new skyscraper there. And the rest of the images represent something in between that kind of internal to our process that ends up as this, this kind of um, correlation curve where you have lower correlation um, as you move up the building for all intents and purposes, because maybe the 
the ground areas are represented in all the images and the top of the building is only in one image. So you have this curve of the correlation of these stereo pairs that says, I'm really confident that the ground is here. And I am not at all confident that the top of the building is here. And there's this confidence, um, there's everything else is somewhere in between. So from a kind of keeping a scalable production environment, that's a tough challenge that we have to figure out how to address because obviously we want to be able to represent the building as best we can. But from a change detection perspective, that sort of correlation metadata gives us some really interesting indicators to look for. And with all that being said, I will also include the fact that um, in order to really get to the vision that that we're trying to execute on, we completely recognize that we need to be able to leverage other remotely sensed data and other phenomenologies as inputs into this kind of larger view of the world in order to, to have any chance of really kind of uh, getting a meaningful change detection capability that, that can inform our both production and also the customer's collection uh, strategies. I'm really pleased that you mentioned those other senses or the idea that you'd like to include them at some stage because uh, I want to talk about that towards the end of, end of the interview. But um, for right now, I think you've done an amazing job of, of taking us on a journey here. You know, what is it that you're doing? How are you doing? What are the problems you're, you're facing and how are you solving them? So I really appreciate that. But I'd like to shift gears a little bit and and talk about the use cases for this because I think by now the listeners understand that you're building this incredible data set, this incredible, incredibly accurate and updated model of the world. What are people using it for? Yeah, that's, that's the more fun part, at least for me. So um, it's, it's really interesting. When I, uh, when I first uh, actually, and I joined before the company was even the company, so I've been with it um, from before its current um, its current life, and it was amazing. Even internally inside of the company, for the first couple of years, um, we would sit around our our tables trying to strategize about how to go to market and how to how to get customer adoption. And one of the questions that I would always ask is, "Why 3D?" Because in our own internal discussions, it just seemed so like such a no-brainer. This is clearly everybody must need, need this if you look at it. And it's one of these, one of the, uh, 3D geospatial data is one of these very kind of visceral things. So if you start looking at a place and really start exploring the world and understanding that you're, you're kind of, I am being immersed in a part of the world that I never thought that I could see in this way. It's, it's one of these things where if you're a geospatial person, it's, it's a no-brainer. But translating that into customer requirements and specific use cases was challenging up front and so that that question of why 3d what is it what is the requirement that actually drives the transition from 2d or kind of traditional mapping techniques into the third dimension and ultimately this, if i want to boil all of the answers down to the, the simplest one that we have come up with and that has really kind of taken hold amongst all of our customers, the answer is accuracy, right? So the reality is, if we all look outside of our windows right now, 
we have to acknowledge that we live in a three-dimensional world, right? And for those of us who live in urban areas, uh, that third dimension is a critical component of our daily lives. Uh, you go to your office building and you take the elevator up or down a number of floors. And when you start thinking about it and you think about all of the other people in the building, there are a thousand other people who do the same behavior, but they may not go quite as far up or down. And so as, as kind of technology has progressed over the last 10, 15 years and remote sensing capability has just exploded to the point of almost becoming ubiquitous in our ability to collect data about uh, the world, we are increasingly, both in the commercial world and also in the government and national defense um, or national security side of the world, we're increasingly driving the questions that we're trying to answer down to a human scale. So we want to understand human behavior at the individual level in the world. And it turns out that when you want to understand human behavior at the individual level, you need a data structure that is capable of representing the world at human scale, which is to say that third dimension becomes a critical requirement. Because if you're trying to figure out how to accurately correlate a number of different data sets from collected from different sources in different places where the, the kind of uh, common focus is a person, then you need to be able to represent the fact that that building has multiple floors and that person is not on the ground floor, they're on the sixth floor. You can think of the, uh, a lot of the, the focus on the modernization of the 911 system. And a big part of this is a recognition that urbanization of our communities has, has left a, an information gap for first responders and their ability to know where an emergency happens in the third dimension. Because you get people calling on VoIP phones where you don't necessarily have a uh, direct ability to triangulate a location because you're running off of an IP address. And all of a sudden you're trying to send emergency services to some place that is in this XY location or in this uh, lat long location, but where that that's no longer precise enough for what we're trying to accomplish. Now, I, I really don't want to downplay all the things that you've said so far in the conversation. This is not what I'm trying to do. But I'd like to move on again um, and, and talk a little bit about the future. And so when, when, I, th when I think about these things, you, when I think about data collection at this scale, um, it, and I think about our increasing access to data from these different sensors, um, I wonder sometimes, is the future just more of the same? Are we, can we just expect to get more data and more, more pixels? Is, is that it? I mean, obviously, that'll lead to a lot of opportunity in terms of derived data products. But is that the future itself, just more of what we have today and a little higher quality or a little higher resolution? Or are we going to shift and go in a completely new direction? Uh, that's a good question. And I'm one of those, one of those types of people who... I'm rarely satisfied with the way things are or incremental change, particularly when we're dealing in or 
when I'm spend a lot of my time dealing kind of in the depths of a lot of these bureaucratic organizations where incremental change from where we are today or where the, the users are today is still 20 years behind where the kind of bleeding edge of technology is. Um, and it's, it's a reality of, of large organizations, right? The, the government, the U S government is a very large organization. And, um, from an investment standpoint, it takes a long time for things to change, but, but I, I'm uh, perpetually the one who is, um, pushing for meaningful change in order to really make a difference. And so, so I look at a, f- a few things when it comes to the question of, of what does the future hold? So there's a tech- technological component to this where the advancements in remote sensing probably will be incremental, um, that those increments have been relatively large over the last 10, 15 years, driven by a lot of the um, kind of commercial, major commercial markets that are out there. And I think there's going to be a a continued growth in our ability to sense the world. And that growth will be better resolution. It'll be more spectral bands. So a lot of the investment in multispectral and hyperspectral and like the recognition that there is information that's outside of the visible band that we typically perceive the world in that's that's going to continue and and also looking into the rf and uh, cyber domains as well so those are going to continue i think the the real kind of leap ahead opportunities are going to exist in the integration and fusion of those data sets together so we we have been Certainly in the in the national security world, the topic of data fusion has been one that has been uh, kind of buzzwordy for 15 years now, 20 years, maybe longer than that. And we have never really done it well. Uh, kind of like change detection. It's never really been done well. I think we're, we're getting to this point in, in the technology space where really looking at data fusion and data integration and and at the very base level, the correlation of all of these different types of data as the major leap ahead in our ability to derive insights and information from raw data sets. So the imagery world is kind of an easy one to, 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 um, to look at for uh, as an example, right? And so even today, the majority of the information that is generated from imagery that is being collected uh, comes from people, which is amazing. Uh, so there are still today in 2019, there are massive organizations of people who go in and look at every picture that we're collecting. And that's just pictures. That's just visible images not that's not thinking about how those pictures correlate with or can be can be analyzed in concert with other collection that is happening over those same locations at the same time in order to generate more pertinent information so this is um there's a lot of work being done uh, into in fields like um 
entity resolution and different things like this, where you start thinking about how do we take these these very massive and ever growing data sets and across phenomenologies, across the entire portfolio that you have available to you, enable um, smart ways to to use each of those measurements to inform a larger information picture that isn't just tied to a single single data type, single phenomenology. And there and there are a lot of kind of really challenging problems in there. There are data problems, there are processing problems, there are opportunities for machine learning and deep learning to make big kind of big impacts, although there's there's still a lot of core science underneath that as well that needs to happen. There's still a lot of learning from the way that we humans uh, digest and interpret data that is, is important to take into account there as well. I'd just like to take a minute to try and summarize a little bit and perhaps pick out some of the really, really important observations I, I heard you make. Um, and, and one of them was definitely like this um, recognition that there is a huge gap in the industry. So it sounds like we have you know the the people that are on the the ground floor and the ones at the the cutting edge of the of the geospatial industry there's a massive gap between them and also i heard you say that perhaps the the next big opportunity is not so much collecting more it's it's perhaps learning how to use what we have already and integrating the, the these different data sets yeah is that is that correct yeah, I think so. I'll I'll expand upon both of those points just a little bit. So so the first point as far as the the gap that exists. I I actually think it's a it's a gap between not just the the geospatial people on the ground floor, but it's a it's a gap between everybody, all of the users and the people who are on the the kind of cutting edge of the geospatial world. This and so I have spent the last several years supporting the United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation. And one of the biggest kind of educational and policy level uh, topics and discussions that we have is that that geospatial as a uh, discipline is pretty niche still. Even geography is pretty niche. I, I will be the first one to admit that when I think about geography, I think about the pull-down maps in fourth grade, and that was about all that I thought about. Right, that was the last time that I could remember in my academic career thinking about geography as a thing. But the reality is that every single person in our country and in the developed world is a user of geospatial technology, and they just don't know it or don't have a language to describe it. So, I mean, every day we've become so reliant on GPS and Google Maps and and uh, Yelp and all of these other things that we we use to navigate our daily lives, and all of that comes back to this geospatial data science underneath, and and people are are not terribly aware. So, so there's a there's a, a communication gap that I run into pretty frequently from users, the people who have a need, who don't know how to describe that need in terms of kind of geospatial capability or what's what's going on or what is what's available or the technology that could be available to solve the problem and so that's a that's a big um a big component of that gap and then obviously there are there are kind of bureaucratic and, and organizational components of that gap as well as far as friction 
to bringing new capabilities, new technologies, um, new data, new enterprise architectures in order to be able to deliver some of these things. So, so that I think that gap is is really critical, and it's it's a pretty massive gap. It turns out, which provides good opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now I have completely lost the second point. The second point was around the opportunity, perhaps not being creating more data, but perhaps ah, being better perfect. at using the, the the data we have, integrating that data. Yes, absolutely, and and that one I think hits the nail on the head. So, so Vricon as a company is a uh, shining case study and example to to demonstrate that there is massive opportunity in figuring out how to use existing data sets in better ways, right? So our entire business plan and our business strategy was built around the fact that this data has been collected and it's sitting in data centers and in archives around the world. And if we figure out a smart way to be able to bring it in, process it in a unique way and generate additional derived information, we can create massive value on top of what has has already been collected or what will already be collected. Isaac, this has been a truly enlightening and, and fascinating conversation for me. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to teach us all a little bit more about what you do and, and the geospatial industry in general and, and your part of it. So, so that's been fantastic. But before I before I let you go, can you just let the listeners know where they can go to learn more about you and perhaps follow along with your work or perhaps where they could go to reach out to you if they have, have questions? Absolutely. Uh, so first, first off, thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to come on. Uh, this is one of those things where you can probably tell I'm reasonably passionate about what I do, and I thoroughly enjoy getting an opportunity to to share with the world. Um, so, f- for those of you who are more who are interested in more information, uh, you can visit our website www.vricon.com. Um, and if you have interests or or thoughts or questions, there's an info link on, on our website that you can reach out directly. And it will probably come to me directly. <laughs> Isaac, thank you so much for taking the time. It, it's much appreciated. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thanks again to our generous sponsors, Hive Mapper. Not only do they help make this podcast possible, but they have created this amazing platform which lets you upload video data and have it automatically converted into 3D geospatial layers. So that all sounds very simple, but you might be wondering, well, where do I get that data from? Well, in a very simple example, you could take a a GoPro camera, strap it to a drone somehow, fly it over an area and you've collected the data that you need to create these these 3D geospatial layers in in HiveMapper. It can be that easy. And that's the thing that I think is really amazing about this platform. You can use a variety of different sensors. You don't need to do any pre-processing of data. Just upload the video footage as it is. You need no positioning metadata attached to that. Just upload it and it'll do the rest for you. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and I just really want to thank you for tuning in again this week. It's much appreciated. I also really want to give a big shout out to all the people that have taken the time to rate and review this podcast on on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. It it really helps us out. It also gives me an idea of the things that I can improve and perhaps what direction I should take it in in the future. As always, there are some useful links in the show notes, and you are more than welcome to reach out to me for whatever reason on social media. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Bye.